0: Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Dr. James Zogby, co-founder and president of the Arab American Institute, who examines Israel's rationale for bombing civilian targets in Gaza that has now killed more than 10,000 Palestinian civilians. Jeff Shirky, assistant professor of labor studies at Empire State College, who discusses the end of the United Auto Workers' strike that won historic agreements with the big three U.S. automakers. And Dr. Sandra Steingraber co-founder of Concerned Health Professionals of New York, who talks about the new edition of Compendium on Fracking that finds serious climate and health hazards linked to home use of natural gas. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories.
1: The leader of Argentina's ruling Peronist party won a surprising victory in the first round of presidential elections on October 22, despite raging inflation, rising poverty, and the plummeting value of the nation's currency. Economy minister Sergio Massa won 37 percent of the vote, edging out right-wing libertarian Javier Malay, who won 30 percent. Massa and Malay will now go to a runoff vote on November 19th that will determine who will succeed outgoing center-left Peronist President Alberto Fernandez. Massa mobilized Peronist Party loyalists pledging to protect the country's social safety net, while Malay wants to replace the peso with the American dollar slash public spending and eliminate the culture, environment, and women's ministries. Malay offended many voters when he insulted Pope Francis, an Argentine native, calling the pontiff a leftist son of a bitch. Whoever wins the runoff election must deal with the nation's worst economic crisis in 20 years. The incoming government will have to resuscitate an economy facing triple-digit inflation, negative net foreign exchange reserves, a sliding currency, and find a way to service a $44 billion IMF loan. Tens of millions of dollars in funds from the bipartisan federal infrastructure law is now reaching oil-producing states like Louisiana. The Bayou State plans to use the funds to cap 500 abandoned oil and gas wells. That's twice the number of wells the state could afford to plug on its own. However, the federal funding is not nearly enough to cap the estimated 4,500 abandoned oil and gas wells across Louisiana. During the first round of infrastructure legislation funding, 24 states received over $560 million. Plugging abandoned wells is key to controlling groundwater contamination and greenhouse emissions, especially methane gas which is 25% more potent than carbon dioxide in damaging the climate. In the second round of funding, states will be required to measure the amount of methane released from each well. When the infrastructure bill passed in 2021, the country had 125,000 documented abandoned wells and an estimated 800,000 undocumented wells. Although the federal funds won't come close to fixing all the nation's abandoned wells, Adam Peltz of the Environmental Defense Fund believes the program represents a significant down payment on a long-ignored problem. In several Midwestern states, anti-abortion groups are aggressively campaigning to block ballot measures to protect abortion rights. In Ohio, a Republican-run state agency rewrote the language in a ballot question that would guarantee access to abortion in the state constitution. The Ohio Supreme Court upheld the language change despite charges by pro-choice activists that the wording was designed to confuse voters. In Missouri, a Republican official launched a legal challenge that has stalled a citizen led effort to pass a law guaranteeing reproductive health care. ProPublica reports right wing groups are adopting voter suppression tactics long employed in Republican led states to undermine current campaigns to protect abortion rights. In the 2022 midterm election, abortion was on the ballot in six states, and voters in each state voted to protect abortion access, including Republican-controlled states like Montana, Kansas, and Kentucky. In the 2024 election, abortion measures are expected to play an important role in state races of Missouri, Florida, Colorado, Arizona, and New York. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo.
0: One month after the Hamas October 7th terrorist attack that killed 1,400 Israelis and captured 240 civilians taken to Gaza as hostages, Israel's retaliatory bombing of Gaza has killed 10,000 Palestinians, including more than 4,000 children. In response to the ongoing carnage, worldwide protests were organized in London, Berlin, Paris, Ankara, Istanbul, and Washington on November 4th calling for a ceasefire. In recent weeks, Jewish Voice for Peace and their allies have engaged in protests and acts of civil disobedience at the U.S. Capitol, New York City's Grand Central Station, Philadelphia's 30th Street train station, and at the Statue of Liberty to demand a ceasefire in Gaza while denouncing U.S. support for Israel's indiscriminate bombing campaign. Israel's relentless airstrikes, combined with a lack of food, water, fuel, and medical supplies, prompted U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres to declare that the unfolding catastrophe in Gaza makes the need for a humanitarian ceasefire more urgent with every passing hour, describing the situation in Gaza as becoming a graveyard for children. Your reporter spoke with Dr. James Zogby, co-founder and president of the Arab American Institute, and a highly respected international public opinion pollster. Here he takes a critical look at Israel's rationale for bombing civilian targets in Gaza and the conditions under which Palestinians live that lead to anger and despair.
2: The Israelis really talking about exterminating Hamas or they're all animals and we've got to, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. I say, you know, if you want to defeat Hamas, give hope to the people of Gaza. Give hope to the people of Palestine pull the rug out from under those who prey off of their despair. It's counterintuitive for some, but it's the only rational approach. If Palestinians had employment, if they had a future, if they had a sense that they will get independence, they will get freedom, that the occupation and the strangulation of their country will end, that would take care of so much of what we consider violent extremism. If you think about it, it's logical. If they had a reason to live, they would. But they don't. The young kids don't. And I think that's the one thing I want people to understand about Gaza is that if there were a radical transformation of daily life, a lot of what we see today as problematic would go away.
0: Dr. Zagbi, Israel, and to some degree the U.S., is justifying Israel's bombing of civilian targets in Gaza, schools, mosques, hospitals, U.N. compounds, and the like, by claiming that Hamas terrorists are using Palestinian civilians as human shields, and some Israeli officials compare Israel's attack on Hamas as parallel with U.S. attacks on Germany and Japan during World War II. What's your response to that kind of rationale for the carnage we're seeing in Gaza right now?
2: Um, Look, we've been dealing with this issue of, of bombing Gaza. Israel used to say smart bombs, and we went after a very specific target. And frankly, they lie. There's no such thing as a smart bomb. There's always what they call collateral damage, meaning civilians who will die because they're in the vicinity. They go after a Hamas leader who's living in an apartment building with his family and his families around. They kill a bunch of people. They say it was collateral damage or human shields. No, there are rules of war that are honored more in the breach than in the observance. And the fact is, is that when you bomb a congested area, when you bomb a church, When you bomb uh, a hospital, when you bomb a school, even if there is a bad person in the school and you kill 100 other people or 50 other people or 10 other people, that is a crime. There's no such thing as an excusable killing of dozens of, and in this case, thousands and thousands of civilians. There just isn't. And frankly, if Israel thinks that by doing this, they're getting rid of Hamas, Every one of those families that lost people, every one of those families that have been forced to flee from the north and go to the south, where there is no infrastructure, where there is no housing, where they had to leave all of their belongings, their photographs, their family treasures, their memorabilia, all the stuff that was a part of their lives. They've had to abandon it, and now these buildings have been bombed into rubble. They're not going to grow up loving Israel. They're not going to grow up wanting peace you're going to get something more virulent than Hamas itself at the end of this. There is no logic to this. If the idea is to make peace, there's no logic to killing thousands of people and just saying, ah, it's collateral damage, and they shouldn't have been there in the first place we told them to leave. Look, Hamas is a deplorable organization with a, 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 an ideology that I find contemptible. They're misogynist. They use theology as an ideology, which is always dangerous, just as it is for the extremist religious groups uh, in the West Bank, the the Israeli groups, and just as it is for some of the religious nationalists here in in the U.S. When you use God to justify all your behavior, you're trying to justify evil things you do. I do not have any feeling uh, for Hamas at all other than anger at what they've done over the years. But having said that, To allow Israel to kill 10,000 people to exterminate them, when you know, or we should know from history, that will not happen. What's going to happen when the dust settles and the tears dry is we're going to just have lots of dead people, lots of anger, and probably more extremism than we had before. This is not the way to solve this problem, and frankly, I fault Hamas, to be sure. I clearly fault Israel, but more than that, I fault the United States because— we should have been the adult in the room. We should have put restraint on this. And when we give Israel $4 billion a year and we're giving them another $14 billion, and we go to them and we say, please don't do this, and please think about civilian casualties, and, you know, it's not a good idea if you go to—I mean, bullshit. pardon my French. The point is, is that we can put conditions on that aid. They put conditions on us. They say we're not going to do a ceasefire unless Hamas does this, this, this. We can say to them, and you're not going to get the $14 billion unless you pause and stop bombing and stop your settlers from rampaging through the West Bank, evicting innocent people from their orchards and from their villages, which is what they've been doing under the cover of what's going on in Gaza. A couple dozen Palestinian villages have been evacuated by terrorist settlers who've come in and, and, and have just scared them out of their homes. These are crimes, and we're, we're guilty of them. America is. Because it's been happening on our watch and we have done nothing other than plead with the Israelis not to do it when we have far more leverage than that.
0: That was Dr. James Zogby, co-founder and president of the Arab American Institute and a highly respected international public opinion pollster. Find more analysis and commentary on the Israel-Hamas war by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. After a six-week strike, the United Auto Workers Union scored a major victory, winning new contracts with U.S. Big Three automakers, Ford, GM, and Stellantis, that awaits a ratification vote by union members. The union recovered much of the substantial concessions members made in the aftermath of the nation's 2008 economic crisis, where U.S. auto companies teetered on the edge of bankruptcy. The UAW negotiated a 25% wage increase over the four and a half years of the contract, cost of living increases, the right to strike over plant closures, and a shorter time period for workers to reach top pay. Soon after the UAW victory, Toyota announced an increase in wages for its non-union U.S. Southern factory workers, apparently in response to UAW President Sean Fain's message that the union will soon be setting its sights on organizing non-union workers at Toyota, Honda, and Tesla's American Auto Assembly plants. Your reporter spoke with Jeff Shirky, assistant professor at the Harry Van Arsdale Jr. School of Labor Studies at New York's Empire State College. Here he talks about the UAW's victory and the likely impact of the union's success on the larger U.S. labor movement.
3: So a lot of what this Strike was about was winning back some of the things that have been lost, particularly because the big three have been making record profits, uh, a quarter of a trillion dollars in North American profits over the last decade. So the slogan, of course, of the UAW and its new president, Sean Fain, was record profits mean record contracts. So that's what they set out to accomplish. Um, They had a lot of really bold, uh, ambitious demands in bargaining. They certainly didn't get everything, but they, I think they moved things forward in a way that a lot of folks were saying was not possible.
0: Professor Shirky, tell us about part of these agreements that focused on unionizing the battery plants, which is Mm -hmm. quite important given the future of the automotive industry that many, of course, see as uh, being tied up in the production of electric vehicles.
3: In the agreements, the UAW did succeed in extending the master agreement um, at GM and Stellantis, in particular, to being able to offer a path for workers at those plants to be able to unionize through through a card check, where you know it's a much more much more simple kind of process where they don't have to face an, an employer pushback or anti-union campaign. At Ford, at least two electric vehicle plants that are under construction in Tennessee and in Marshall, Michigan, uh, will also have a path to fall under the agreement. But the the larger significance, of course, is like you said that this is electric vehicles are you know they should are and should be the future of the auto industry to, as a way to uh, you we know, have to reckon with the realities of climate change and we can't keep relying on gas powered cars. I, I should add that. You know, companies like Tesla, Elon Musk's, you know, the, the biggest electric vehicle automaker is also the only entirely non-union auto company in the United States. And UAW is looking to unionize Tesla now and can use this victory at the big three to say to workers at Tesla as well as workers at the other auto companies. A lot of the uh, Japanese-based companies like Toyota, if they unionize, they can make a lot more money. They can have better benefits
0: The U.S. labor movement has been losing hundreds of thousands of members in recent decades. And it seems in the last couple of years, we've seen a turnaround, at least in the energy and efforts going into organizing new workers and new sectors. What impact do you think this uh, United Auto Workers victory will have on the larger U.S. labor movement?
3: I think it will have a big impact. It will inspire a lot more of the actually existing established unions that um, they should be willing to be bold at the bargaining table and to be innovative in their strategies. Uh, It's important the context of of this victory that the UAW just achieved is that they only a few months ago voted in uh, a new president and new leadership after passing an amendment to allow the rank and file to directly vote for top officers, which had never been on the table before. So I think that will inspire rank and file movements within other established unions to say we should be able to have a direct vote in who our leaders are and vote in new, more energized, more visionary kinds of leaders and, and take these kinds of risks. And for the non-union workers, you know, any kind of victory uh, is inspiring to them to say, I should unionize too. I want to be able to improve uh, my working conditions and raise my pay and accomplish things that people think are, you know, people might say are impossible. But again, we all see that these corporations, these employers where millions of people work are incredibly profitable and they're raking in billions of dollars and they're rewarding their CEOs and their shareholders and the workers kind of get left behind. And that's that's why there was so much public support for this UAW strike. And I think the fact that the strike appears to have paid off and really, did make a difference, that's certainly going to inspire more workers who are non union right now to, to want to organize a union themselves so they can enjoy those kinds of uh, victories and raises and uh, improved conditions as well.
0: That was Jeff Shirkey, assistant professor at the Harry Van Arsdale Jr. School of Labor Studies at New York's Empire State College. Find more analysis and commentary on the UAW strike victory by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. When New York State was considering whether or not To permit the fossil fuel extraction method known as fracking in the middle of the 2010s, a group of scientists and health professionals researched all the peer-reviewed studies they could find on the topic. They collected about 400 papers, assembling them together into easy-to-understand language, with findings that there are both negative health and climate impacts from natural gas fracking, which is still widely used in neighboring Pennsylvania. Dr. Sandra Steingraber is a biologist and one of the scientists who worked on the project, called the Compendium on Fracking. Their research helped convince then Governor Andrew Cuomo to ban fracking in New York. Steingraber's group, called Concerned Health Professionals of New York, has released a compendium every year since 2014. The ninth edition, published in collaboration with Physicians for Social Responsibility, was just released in October. Between the Lines Melinda Tuhu spoke with Dr. Steingräber about the 2,500 peer-reviewed studies now included in a fully searchable public document with an emphasis on the hazards of gas stoves in liquefied natural gas, or LNG.
4: We've just released the ninth edition. There are now more than 2,500 studies in the peer-reviewed literature, so essentially six times as much evidence as there was in 2014 when New York State took the decision to ban fracking. And all of those studies pretty much corroborate showing us that fracking is even worse for health and the environment than we thought, and in ways that are even more intractable and unfixable than we realized. So, public health data tends to be very what we call noisy, but in this case with fracking, it's very consistent at 90% of the studies that have uh, gone out to look to see if there are risks and harms of fracking have have found them. And so as we continue to release these updated studies, we also began to expand our focus because people were asking us questions about, well, what about pipelines and compressor stations and fracked gas power plants? What about gas storage facilities and the sand mining that accompanies frac mining? And what about gas stoves inside our home, which represent the terminus of the fracking pipeline? So as with each edition that we've released over the years, we have added new chapters and new subject matters to it. And so this This year we took a really close look at gas stoves and gas appliances. And from our perspective as public health scientists, we see the combustion of fracked gas inside of our homes as the terminus of the fracking pipeline. Literally the pipeline begins where the fracked gas comes out of the ground and the shale bedrock is shattered and it ends inside of our own kitchens with the combustion of that fracked gas which leads to indoor air pollutants that it's very clear that they create risks for health, namely asthma in children, but also heart attack and stroke risk Uh, in adults. And so this edition is getting a lot of attention, I think, because people have deep emotional feelings and, of course, deep familiarity with their kitchen stoves in ways that compressor stations and flare stacks and other parts of the fracking infrastructure project we don't have this sort of domestic intimate relationship with. I'm a single mom myself. I would make dinner on my stove while overseeing homework at the kitchen counters. Like people have been cooking with gas stoves in their homes for decades. And you know, nobody knew that it was a problem. So how are they showing health impacts? Well, we were surprised to find that gas stoves have been studied thoroughly to look at their impact on respiratory health with data going back to the 70s. So there are dozens of studies. They're all very consistent and they're all very troubling. And so our job as scientists in the public interest was to really pull all of these studies together out of this sort of obscurity of the peer reviewed medical literature, translate them into plain spoken English and then um, present them to the public. And and that is what we do in all the chapters of the compendiums according to 16 topic areas. But we also then look at trends in the data across topic areas and summarize those. So you don't have to read, you know, all 2,500 footnotes to get a sense of what the trends look like. And so we do this for gas stoves, but we also do it for pipelines. We also do it for flare stacks and compressor stations. We look at risks for earthquakes. We look at risks for radiation exposure. We look at air pollution, water contamination, climate risks health risks of all kinds, worker health and safety issues. So we have chapters on all of these things. So one other thing I wanted to ask you about is that over the last several years, the U.S. has become the top exporter of liquefied natural gas, so-called, or LNG, which has such a huge carbon footprint and also huge implications for public health, especially in the Gulf Coast where most of them are located. Does your new compendium look at the latest on that? LNG is a big topic for our new compendium. It has its own chapter and is identified in the front matter as one of the big trends. Yes, liquefied natural gas is the form of fracked gas that we use when we want to sell gas to some place where pipelines don't reach, namely across oceans. And so liquefied natural gas is actually created not through pressure. You can't actually liquefy methane and turn it into a gas. You have to use cryogenics. And so it's super chill down to, you know, minus 400 degrees where it turns into a liquid and, and is more compact. The volume then shrinks remarkably. And so you can load it on ships and send those ships to some other uh, nation state so we are basically shattering the bedrock of our nation to extract this vapor methane carbon with four hydrogens around it liquefy it and send it all around the world and there are risks and harms to the communities where the LNG terminals are located it's a lot of air pollution because in order to purify the gas during the chilling process there are a lot of impurities in the gas that would freeze, and you have to vent those out, and that includes benzene. So a lot of these dangerous other hydrocarbons that are mixed in with the gas are vented into the communities where LNG is created in order to super chill the gas and load it on the ships.
0: That was biologist Dr. Sandra Steingraber, co-founder of the group Concerned Health Professionals of New York. Find a link to their compendium on fracking and related research by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archived programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WEFR in Fairmont, West Virginia, KTAL in Las Cruces, New Mexico, KUGS in Bellingham, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Ta. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.